Welcome to this late hour. A look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I've got a very exciting interview today. I'll be sitting down to chat with a Dr. Kent Parks. Now, he was recommended to speak with me uh, through Doug Cobb, and this man has decades of experience uh, not only in doing great commission work through bringing the gospel to unreached people groups, but also in church planting, and runs an organization called Beyond. And in our conversation today, I'm going to just drill down into where he sees our progress as a church regarding the Great Commission in this sort of wider umbrella of international church planting. It's a great conversation, and, uh, and we get into lots of different uh, avenues of discussion throughout the interview. So with all that said, let's dive right in to my discussion with Dr. Kent Parks from Beyond as we discuss the church's progress related to international church planting and reaching the unreached peoples of the world. Well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kent Parks, the president and CEO of the ministry organization Beyond, to this late hour. Dr. Parks, welcome. Thank you, Casey. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Well, very glad to have you on the program with us today. So as I was speaking with you before we uh, went live here, uh, I was just mentioning to you, you know, our mutual friend Doug Cobb introduced us here together and what I've been doing on the program recently is really just trying to get a sort of 60,000 foot view of the Great Commission and sort of looking at the three different areas that Rick Warren really laid this down. He had this, uh, you know, this 3B model of kind of looking at the Great Commission with, uh, you know, reaching unengaged and slash unreached groups, uh, you know, and then also the work with Bible translations, as well as with what you're doing with uh, international church planting. So really, that's where this all came from. So uh, what I'd like to do is just sort of have you, you know, tell us who you are. Who is, who is Dr. Kent Parks and, and what is it that you do? What an open-ended question. <laughs> I, was born, I was born in Indonesia to missionary parents. Uh, and later, I served as a pastor for seven years in Texas. And then my wife and I served 20 years in Indonesia and Malaysia working among Muslims, began to learn uh, the principles of reproducing disciples and reproducing churches. And then in 2008, started uh, leading this organization that we now call Beyond. Well, tell me a little bit. I, I'd like to push into that a little more. So you said you worked with Muslims for a good number of years. So what? how did that all come about? How did you end up working with the Muslim community? Well, I had a sense of call early on. Uh, to to uh, cross-cultural uh, ministry, uh, missions, if you will, and uh, pursued that. So the call was clear. Uh, my wife also, when we met, she also had a similar call. And so we went because of a, our passion to make sure that people who've never had a chance to hear about Jesus get to hear the good news 
and see the good news in action. And so that passion led us overseas uh, to bring Jesus's message to people who hadn't had the chance. And how long were you amongst the Muslims there working with discipleship and, and reaching the lost? We were we were 20 years combined in the two countries, although the latter part of that time I was also traveling into other countries. So how did you specifically come to be involved in this sort of church planning work? And so clearly you were there working with the Muslims directly. So how did it sort of, was it always about the church planting? Or was it just about bringing people to Jesus and then initially getting into the church planting? How did that all kind of develop? Well, in, in my mind and many of our thoughts, we don't separate those. Uh, we, we make disciples and they become church. And so when, when we went out, we were going to be involved in helping uh, people start churches because churches, like we see in Acts 2, are God's agency to change society and bring the, the good message and the good deeds of the gospel. And so I was passionate to see that happen, passionate to go where the gospel had never been, and, and passionate about reaching Muslims. And so as we began to do that, I began to look at the traditional methods being involved and, and the group I was a part of and then kind of the broad sweep of mission organizations and began to realize the numbers weren't going to add up. Doing church one by one by one wasn't going to reach. It wasn't going to get ahead of population growth. And so out of that, uh, we began to look back at Scripture and begin to see Jesus's multiplying principles. And interestingly, many around the world, God was doing the same thing. We, we, we didn't all know each other, but God was doing much the same process with many of us around the world at that time. Would, would you like to just briefly maybe explain for the listeners what, what these multiplying principles are that Jesus lays out there and how you were sort of uh, bringing those into action? I began to realize that a lot of what we would call mission strategy was complex and ultimately shallow. Complex meaning you got to study a long time and you got to have the experts and but then it it really did not go deep into uh, the quantity and the quality of changing society because it depended too much on the outside expert. And as we look back at what Jesus did, what he did was simple but deep. Uh, I don't mean easy. Simple means reproducible. It does not mean easy. Sure. And so we, when you look at it, the one of the best ways to to uh, summarize it in Luke eight, Jesus goes out. He tells the good news. He heals the sick, Luke, and so forth. Luke nine, he sends the twelve out to do the same thing, to tell the good news, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. In Luke ten, he sends out seventy two others. So so not the twelve. And they go out, they do the same thing. They come back, they debrief with Jesus. They said, this happened and this happened. And Jesus said, that's great, but, but really what you need to celebrate is that your name is in the, the book of life. And then it uses a, a, a term that is not well translated in English for its exuberance. It says he overflowing with joy would be a better way to translate than it's often translated in Luke 10. He said, Father, you have shown this to the simple and hidden this from the wise. 
-hmm. And basically what he was saying is, look, they did what I did. It's possible. It's, it's, they can reproduce what I've done. The 12 did it. The 72 others that we don't even know their names did it. And when we begin to realize you model something that can be reproduced, and if it's not reproducible, you're not going to get multiplying discipleship. So as you started to implement this, these models of Jesus, you know, uh, they're demonstrated in the Gospels. What kind of progress were you seeing and have you seen made in this endeavor? We, we have begun to see an amazing uh, amount of breakthrough. Now, I've got to start with the bad news. The bad news is that with all the promotion about unreached peoples that began in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, at that time, there were about 1.1 billion who would be called unreached. And again, there's some variation of definitions, but it's it's around that figure. That was in about 1985. And uh, about five years ago, that number had doubled to 2.3 billion people. Some would put it higher um, that are unreached. So traditional methods were not getting ahead of population growth. And so so out of that, we begin to say, what, what will it take to reproduce in a way that grows faster than population growth? And, and so uh, the, the good news is movements of reproducing disciples and reproducing churches and reproducing leaders would be a very short summary, began to develop as, as we began to apply Jesus's principles. And I say we, it's a collective we around the world. There are now, the, the big picture is there are now 1,965 known movements, and a movement's defined, the bare minimum of a movement is four generations of churches in multiple streams. In other words, it's not one church that has great-grandchildren churches. It's multiple first-generation churches, if you will, who started churches who then started third-generation churches, who then started fourth-generation churches and more. When that happens in multiple streams, critical mass happens, DNA of reproduction of disciples and churches happens, and it continues to grow. By that definition, we know of 1,965 movements with over 114 million baptized disciples in 8 million churches. This is a global coalition of movement leaders the majority of whom are non-North American, and the majority of whom are not known uh, beyond some of these circles, but it's substantive and deep. Now, I'm going to take a breath, and you can stop me, but I just came back from a trip, and I appreciate your patience in setting up this interview. As you know, I was traveling. Of course. Uh, I was with a movement leader and his team that have seen since the early 90s, they were one of the earliest church planting movements, as we now call them, uh, easily over 20 million baptized disciples in a very, very hard radical area of South Asia. I was with another leader, also in on the same trip, or actually two leaders, who they began applying this, they learned these, these principles, they put aside traditional approaches, and since uh, 10 years ago is when they started, they've seen over a million baptized disciples in over 200-something thousand churches. Uh, so the, the global picture has begun to change. Now, that's great news, but it's still the 114 million baptized disciples in these known movements. 
that's still only a little over 1% of the world. So that's good news, but there's much more work still to be done because a third of the world still has never heard about Jesus. Yeah, so actually with when Doug was on for an update, we talked about kind of the different categories. And as you said, there's some disagreement in the church, which big surprise there would ever be disagreement among people in church about, you know, how we classify these different groups. And, you know, Doug's basic, his focus is uh, the unengaged who have never, you know, as far as they know, had any gospel in their midst. Uh, Now, then we get into the sort of tricky definition of unreached. So now based on all those exciting things that you were just mentioning, do you know now kind of what as far as from your end, what the unreached number is is now? Yeah, there would be there would be general agreement that 2.3 billion is still the the round figure. Some put it higher based on some varying definitions, and that's fine. I tell people, you know, uh, there's Joshua Project has a percentage definition. World Christian Database has a access definition, and we could go into all those technicalities. But people say which. Which set of definitions do you choose? And I say, that's like asking a photographer, which lens are you going to use? Well, it depends on what picture he's about to take. So we we look at all of these different definitions, all of these different databases. They talk to each other. They kind of correlate, you know, yes, this is our style, but your information is valuable too. So the number is still huge. What's happening is Unreached Peoples has largely until recently been only, that's an overstatement, has largely been defined as an ethno-linguistic people group. And that's a legitimate uh, aspect of the definition. What we've done now is there's still, you're looking for a a group of people who say, this is who we are and you guys are not part of us. That's the definition. That's one simple definition of a people group, because if you can get in and see the gospel begin to spread within that group, it will spread more naturally within its own unit. So there are a number of ways to configure this. What we've what we've said now is let's put a matrix uh, across this. So part of it's ethno-linguistic or ethno-social. You know, all, you have all these very varieties, but then part of it's location. So part of it is identity, and part of it is location because you have a people group in this country, same people group in another country. Well, they're going to be different to some effect, even though they might share a language. And and so we want proportional engagement, meaning we need to make sure that there are teams in every uh, district, if you will. Uh, and I'll give an example. I we worked, uh, my wife and I, among others, worked among the Sunda of Indonesia, mm-hmm. thirty-five million people, second largest ethnic group in the country, very very much unreached, and there were seven eight couples of us at the time, there are some more now, but still not enough. And we were from different organizations and we kind of collaborated on different things. And then we began to realize, and, and everybody's like, oh, the Sunda are engaged. Well, then we began to realize there were seven subgroups of Sunda that every Sundanese would know if you just asked them the right question. And we were only among two of them. So that meant five of the subsegments of the Sunda were not engaged by anybody. So we began to say, let's try to get engagement. And part of that, a lot of that was was geographic, other regions. Some of it was subcultural, if you will. And so that's what we're doing now with this global coalition of movement leaders called 2414 that, that says, let's get to every people and place. 
let's make sure that every people is engaged in every place. So, so analysis is going on. Movement leaders are looking at not just down to the province or state level, if you will, but down to the district level. Are the districts engaged with multiplying disciple uh, strategies that will not just do one church, but will do a movement of churches and disciples? So, I mean, how important is it that we see a church plant, if you will, in every district, in every community? How important is that to this sort of global effort? It's it's absolutely essential for several reasons. Uh, I'll start with the biblical. You know, Jesus, there are several times it says he basically went to every uh, town and village in that region. And if you look closely, he he went into what we would call other countries today. He was up in what we would call Syria. He was up in uh, what we call Lebanon. He was over in what we would call Jordan. And he went to every town and village. So he he went to every segment of society. Uh, the second thing is, uh, there are many things, but one of the, the second thing I'll mention is Matthew 24, 14, uh, which could be legitimately translated this way. This good news of the king's reign will be heralded in the whole world, underline the word whole, as a sacrificial witness to every ethne, ethnic group, poorly translated in the English nation. It really is ethnic group. And then the end will come. What that says to us is the gospel will go to every segment of society in a, in a way that we don't fully understand. Only God knows exactly what that means. But our job is to try to get to every segment of society, every town and village. And so that's that's the biblical basis. And then just on a, a strategic level, if we don't get everywhere, we're not giving everyone a chance. But I, I put an important caveat here. As these movements are breaking out, you know, it, we talk about obedience-based discipleship. It's not about, it's not about, I know these 500 things, therefore I'm a Christian. It's about, do I obey what I know? Mm-hmm. I call it the Nike, I call it the Nike command. Just do it. Jesus <laughs> said it, just do it. And so um, if, if we don't get to every people, they're not going to hear in every segment. And I'll give a great illustration Love this story, and, and I've heard this kind of story in many places. Um, 18, 19 year old young man was in a discovery Bible study in one of these uh, new churches. They were looking at Matthew 28, 16 to 20 and mm-hmm. again. And, and it says, you know, make disciples of all ethne. And so they one of the questions that you ask in that process is, what is God telling you to do? He said, well, that means that the gospel is supposed to go to every people. And that means it goes to people that are not my people. And and this guy, he'd come from a Hindu background. He said, across town, there, there's, you know, where the Muslims live, and they're not my people. That means I've got to go carry the gospel over there. And he turned to a buddy of his and said, you're going to go with me. And they did. And they made some mistakes. And they got beaten up, but they persevered. And a reproducing group of churches, a stream of churches, emerged among the Muslims. And so what we're seeing is these movements are obeying the Lord and going into all of these other segments. And so it, it is we as a global body of Christ that will get into every segment as we're obedient. Absolutely. This may be kind of a, an eschatological and you know, theological type question, even though it's a bit of a simple question. But do you think we will see a church plant within 
every ethnos. Do you think we're going to see it happen? I do. And and I'll be I'll be real as yes, as you kind of set it up, it's it can be one of those things that uh, can be misunderstood and the answer. So I'm going to answer several aspects of it. Sure. It, it is it is clear that that we're commanded to to go into every part of the world. And we've already talked about that. And it's also clear, Jesus said very clearly, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs. Only the Father knows that as he talked to his disciples in Acts 1. So some people accuse this thinking of getting to every people in place of, oh, you're trying to control when Jesus comes back. No, absolutely not. We're trying to obey what Jesus said. Jesus said, get there, go do it, go make disciples. Okay. So our job is obedience. He's 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 got the plan. We just need to know our part of it, and he sends us to go to every place. So that's part of it. The The motivation, the, the highest motivation is we want people to know Jesus. We want people to know life. You know, many, many of the encounters Jesus had when they came to him, he basically, in, in a variety of ways, you can think about Samaritan woman, the rich young ruler, and, and others, he basically said, do you want life? He said it in different ways, but he said, do you want life? And and that's what we're offering because Jesus told us to offer his life to people. Now, it's life now that is, is good in the, you know, wonderful in the good times and wonderful in the bad times. We want people to have that relationship with Jesus because we know what it means to us. And yes, we want them to be in that relationship for eternity. So our motivation is besides the obedience, Jesus said, go do it. Our motivation is we want them to have this abundant life that Jesus promised everyone who follows him. And so do uh, I, I will then go ahead to say this, this change in the, dare I say, algorithm with these movements who are multiplying movements and multiplying churches and multiplying disciples, there, there's a momentum that I'm not sure ex has existed since the first century. We mm -hmm. see some similar things in the first century. We can we can show with pretty good evidence six movements by the definitions that we've suggested. Uh, there's there's some good evidence of that. One was Paul uh, and his team are in Ephesus. Acts nineteen ten says they were in Ephesus for two years, and the whole province of Asia, which is the Roman province of Asia, about two thirds of modern day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. Now it doesn't say everybody believed but it says everybody had access in two years. Mm -hmm. So somebody went back and checked Roman census, and we know they kept a lot of accurate data. Lo and behold, that province was 10 to 15 million people. Let's just take the lower number, 10 million. That means in two years, 10 million people heard the word of the Lord. The only way that happens is Paul and his team made disciples who made disciples who made disciples, and, and everybody obeyed and went out and told the good news, and many came to faith. And we're we're beginning to see some of that happen in in every continent. Their movements, as defined earlier, in every continent, including North America and Europe, although there are not as many there. So I'll I'll kind of tie all of that together to say, no, we don't know when. Uh, Jesus made it clear we were not going to know when, and we were to obey. But I will say that. There was, there was someone who's influenced a lot of us, and many of us have picked up this thought. He said, there's going to come a day 
when God says the job of making disciples of all ethne is done, only God can define that, but there's going to come that day. And so many of us have begun to say, Lord, would you let us be among the last generation to get that done? Because that day is going to be, God's going to use people as imperfect, as messed up as any of us. And, and so, you know, the Lord may say no, but many of us are asking, Lord, could you allow us to see that happen? And so that, that goes with that loving urgency to let people know about life because they're missing out without Jesus. Absolutely. And I think there is certainly, as you said, there's this sort of building, you know, uh, excitement and uh, uh, expansion as we see. And you mentioned, you know, the first century. And, you know, I've certainly myself have sort of just sensed this as I've spoken with people among the ministry uh, ministries of, um, you know, making disciples and, and international missions and, you know, Doug uh, and so on of just this sense of, Man, it seems like uh, you know we could definitely see this in our lifetime because we see the the uh, unengaged number shrinking quickly. We see the great explosion of the Bible translations and and reaching potentially a goal of having some Bible in every language. And then uh, what you've just mentioned as well with this expansive uh, explosion of disciple making that's going on. Certainly, that's sort of in the air. Uh, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm having this conversation with you. It's just there's there's a sense that we live in a very important time. So, with that said, do you you know, and you've said you think you'll we'll see it happen. Do you think we are going to see it happen in our lifetimes? This sort of uh, church community within every district, if you will. Do you do you think we'll see that? Obviously, we can't predict that for certain. But do you have sort of a sense we are going to see that? And do you have a sort of sense of when we might see that happen? It will take all kinds of miraculous things to happen. Uh, but we're seeing some of that kind of thing possibly showing the possibility. I have have not come to the place of saying, we will see it. I do say, Lord, would you let us be a part of seeing it and do what we're supposed to do, do it with urgency we we changed our whole organization. There's a long change process, vision, and so forth. And we're totally focused as an organization on launching these multiplying disciple movements, uh, church planning movements. That's all we do. Now, it's a pretty big thing. but And so we change. We, we put aside some things that are good, but they were not going to get us to the, to the great results. So could it, could it happen? Well, I'll, I'll illustrate it by saying, a lot of movement leaders met together in 2017. There were about 70 of us in two different meetings, about 35 in each meeting, uh, only because we couldn't get everybody, get everybody scheduled together, one in London, one in Dubai. We came together because we said, are, how are we going to do movement engagement, multiplying disciple and multiplying church engagement in every people and place by what year? Uh, are we willing to do whatever it takes? And so that's why we were there. We knew that's why we were there. The projected date was 2030. And, and we're talking starting line, not finish line. Right. Uh, we need to get someone to every starting line by. And so we had the discussion. We heard some of the new numbers at the time about how many known movements, uh, which were much smaller than they are now. And then we broke into small groups. And and every everyone in the room was a movement leader, an organizational leader, we ate, drank, lived movements, disciple-making movements, church planning movements. Uh, everybody in the room was that way. 
And we broke into the group. And of course, yes, that's why we're here. Took about 10 seconds. And then we, the group I was in, the table I was at, we wandered around for about 10 minutes on the date. And finally, one of the guys said, you know, I think that date's too long. Of course, we were all kind of going, well, it's kind of short, 2030. And and the Lord said to him, and interestingly to all of us, we're having the same thoughts, but hadn't spoken them. Uh, we think 2025. And we said, well, everybody will think we're idiots, but that's what we're going to tell the other tables. And we weren't talking between tables. And I kid you not, every single table came with the same recommendation, 2025, that the that's Lord incredible. had given. It's incredible. And, and so... So movements are working very seriously um, to get to every people in place in their regions and helping each other in other, you know, across regions by 2025. That's getting to the starting line. We're not presuming movements will start, but often they have begun to start. And uh, I'll give one illustration. I mentioned a while ago, a movement that 10 years in, they just had uh, a key leadership meeting, uh, uh, 10 years after their start, they're over a million, probably a million and a half disciples, 1,500,000 disciples, baptized disciples. And they listed out together, they're in 15 states of this certain country, and they listed out that they're in 370 plus distinct, they would call it people groups, we might call it uh, a, a variation on that, but different population segments. Mm -hmm. 370. And then they listed the ones where they were not, uh, hadn't not seen fruit, not as a, oh, this is terrible, but as look at the opportunity. And so that's just one illustration of what movements are doing. They're looking across all kinds of lines because Jesus told us to look across the lines and go carry the gospel where it has not been to people groups that are not ours. So could it, could it happen? It'll take all kinds of miraculous things to happen. But at the same time, we're seeing some, some amazing miraculous things happening and some momentum happening that, yeah, with, with God doing some miraculous things, who knows? So that's not much of a, a clear answer, but that's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's where we're going. Yes, Lord, we'll do whatever you ask. And, and hopefully we'll see that soon. Absolutely. When it comes to date setting, really, you know, well, there's never really a, a way to make it uh, 100%. Uh, we're, we're making our best guesses and trusting in the Lord. Right. But it is exciting to hear that everyone had come to that 2025 uh, date. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, do you see that this sort of um, new slash old approach of, of, you know, going back to the Jesus model, if you will, for spreading the good news, do you see that that sort of model that um that way of engaging is starting to uh be at work within the missionary community at large you you mentioned some some of the old ways that weren't really working that weren't bearing a lot of fruit so do you see that this this model that you've been working under uh really just looking how jesus did things and and following what he did do you see that that's been sort of the the new normal with the missions organizations that you've been in a association with Getting is gaining momentum and more people are responding. And interestingly, most of the movements are not being started by Western agencies. They're only a, a handful of the, uh, there are about 40 families, movement families, we call them that have started that the Lord has used to start these 1965 something movements. 
So there is a momentum. At the same time, I find it strange that there's a counter serious articles and, and things being written saying, no, these movements are shallow and they're, they're not biblical. And they're, so there's, there's a whole stream saying, speaking against these movements. They just haven't walked some of the same ground I've walked with these guys who are, you know, paying persecution prices. Again, the leaders I was with, all I was with several leaders in these past three weeks on this trip. And every one of them was talking about the good things God was doing. And then you'd ask them about prayer and they would just mention, as a matter of fact, uh, persecution and martyrdom. Every one of them has had martyrdom in their streams, hmm. uh, but they're moving forward. And so, you know, when people say, well, it's shallow and well, it's not. It's, you know, when people get baptized in those societies, they are paying the price and they're willing to pay the price. Some are saying, yes, we want to be involved in this. We want to figure it out. Uh, others are saying, no, we, we don't, we don't see this as legitimate. So it's kind of an interesting two different viewpoints that's, that have emerged. Yeah, I think it's always easy to be a naysayer and to kind of stand on the side and say, well, I don't yeah. think this is, this is not working, but to really have your hands, you know, in the, you know, in the thick of it and working on uh, these things. I mean, that's, that's a totally different thing. It's not to say that these movements are perfect or these churches are perfect. You know, people, people, I'm sure you've heard people say, well, we want to be a part of a New Testament church. And my answer is, oh, yeah, have you looked closely at the New Testament church? <laughs> they were as messy as, as any church, and yet they were as strong as any church today. Uh, Paul would say to the Galatians, come, you know, this is good stuff, but come on, you need to eat some spiritual meat and not just keep drinking spiritual milk. Mm -hmm. Or to the Corinthians, he said some really good things. And then he said, but you've got to stop this incest situation. And so these, these movements, you know, the churches are messy, but they're making disciples. They're starting new churches. In fact, some movements don't call it a church unless it started another church. And, and so the, the obedience that is evident is, is showing the legitimacy of this, even as messy as, as it is. And there are times, one part of the purpose of my trip, uh, one of the movements that has started several other efforts among different languages, uh, periodically invites some outsiders just to kind of do, we didn't do a full audit, but kind of a survey. Of, we met with 20 to 50 leaders each day, different ones, and kind of interviewed them and, and you know, kind of got a sense because the movement wants to know how healthy they are. Now, are, were there problems with that? Yeah, sure. But was there great result with it also? Absolutely. So, yeah, movements aren't perfect. The churches are not perfect any more than any of the rest of us are. But they are making disciples and they are starting churches. Absolutely. How significant would you say it is that we're seeing this sort of first century style explosion, you know, amongst these different outreach and ministry organizations? Oh, it's absolutely huge. We have data, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, that that these movements are growing significantly faster than the populations around them. Uh, so, so that just on a numerical stance, they're they're producing more fruit than uh, any other traditional approach. And so, this is this is huge. The momentum grows. Uh, I taught a perspective session last night, and. Had a couple of, of the young men come up and talk to me during the break saying, you know, we're trying to do this and and we're running into this hurdle and that. And 
And so we're going to, I'm going to meet with them and say, Hey, let's see if we can figure it out together. So there, there are those who are saying, I want to do this. I want to make disciples who make disciples. Because if we make a disciple who doesn't make a disciple, we haven't taught them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And so I'm, I'm hearing more and more people who go, yeah, help me, help us learn how to do this. And that's good. The momentum of these movements is huge. Uh, the movement leaders meet annually together, uh, as many as can, from, from every continent. And uh, I love what an African movement leader said. He's leading a significant movement and is helping others start movements. He said, we're using a new technology 2,000 years old, talking about the approach to making disciples who reproduce. It's amazing what can happen when you just follow what Jesus said. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I like to do with Doug is ask him to share some stories from the field that he's heard of or, or maybe even experienced firsthand of some of the miraculous things God's doing around the world. It's always a great way to inspire and bring hope in some of these dark times. And I wondered if you had any stories from the field of church planning among unreached people groups that you could share with us. Absolutely. So in this interview process that I was in just a few weeks, just a couple of weeks ago, a very, we were, uh, we often would interview two guys at a time and have them each, each answer the question. Of course, we we're working through translators. And had a guy come in, waiting his turn, just sat through the, the interviews of the other guys, very unassuming, kind of a wiry guy, uh, wouldn't notice him in a room. And then it became his turn to be interviewed. Uh, and again, very calm, very understated kind of personality. So I asked him, how long have you followed Jesus? He said, about 15 years. I said, how many churches have you started? He said, just 75. <laughs> I said, how, how many churches have your team started? Because these guys were there because they had raised up leaders who raised up leaders who raised up leaders. He said, uh, about 1,500. And I just want to ask people, so how many churches have you started? Here's a guy had raised up a team, and collectively they've started over 1,500 churches. Then I got asking him, about uh, his background. He said, yeah, when I came to faith, I was a dangerous man. And he just said it real calmly. I was a dangerous man. I was a robber. He, they actually pantomimed, the, both he and the translator pantomimed using a gun. And so not a thief, but a robber. Mm -hmm. He said, I was a dangerous man. And I came to faith and I was threatened, of course, and pressured by the community around me to come back to that religion. And he thought, he finally told them, he said, you don't want me to come back to that religion. If I do, I'll become the man I was before. And I was a dangerous man. And if I become that man again, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> okay. Uh, I hadn't heard a testimony like that. But, but then he fast forwarded to a more recent event and uh, a police chief and several policemen came with him to arrest this guy for converting people, which is highly illegal in that country. And, and he said, I'm not converting anybody. I'm just telling, I'm singing songs about Jesus and telling stories about Jesus. And so the police chief said, all right, sing me a song. And he actually did it with us. He pulled, I asked him and he pulled out his little tambourine and, and sang, of course, I didn't know the words, but a very simple song, very much from the culture of that uh, country. And 
And when he was through, the police chief said, oh, that song fills me with great peace. I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing. So you can keep singing your songs and telling your stories. <laughs> and, and, you know, here's a guy who's, who's raised up leaders, who's raised up leaders who collectively have started 1500 churches, a uh, former robber, a former dangerous man. And I, I believe him. And, and, you know, you just, you get stories like that. I mentioned a couple of movement leaders a while ago. I'll mention one of the background stories. One of these guys had started 12 churches, was leading 12 churches. And one of our guys was led by the Lord. He'd, he'd done some retraining and he was led by the Lord to say uh, to this, he kind of, they didn't know each other well, but he said, would you come for a training? And the guy thought, this, this American, you know, what does he know? He hadn't started any churches here. I've started 12. I'm also teaching at a Bible school. A month later, saw him again, and he and I've heard him say this. He said, I felt embarrassed for him, so I told him I would come. <laughs> so he, he says it in front of uh, in front of our coworker. And uh, they're, I mean, they're deep friends. And so they came, and we use a discovery process where what does the scripture say? What does it say about God? What does it say about people? It's not about one-way talking. And so our guy welcomed him, and and they there were three or four who came together. And it was just in his living room. And he said, all right, pull out Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Write it down word for word. Write it then in your own words. And then write what you should do, what God's telling you to do. And, and this local partner said, the guy who was leading 12 churches, he said, I realized in 10, and, and, and our, our coworker went to make tea. He's like, what kind of training is this? You know, but he said in 10 minutes, I realized I had never made a disciple. I'd started churches, but not made disciples. I had not raised up people to help them make disciples of others. In 10 minutes, God changed me. He left those 12 churches, gave up secure salary. Uh, our, our guy, our team doesn't, doesn't pay him. He and uh, another core of folks along with our couple that are working closely together. They're the ones that have seen, uh, oh, well over a million baptized disciples in 15 states, 370 people groups impacted, fruit among, and so forth. So when you walk beside people like this, who pay a high price and, and just are joyful doing it and joyful in making disciples, who wouldn't want to do that? One of the things that strikes me in that story this robber who converted to Christ is this uh, just complete lack of fear here. The police come and quarter him and, you know, what are you doing? We got to, you can't do this. And well, I do, I'm just singing songs and telling stories. Okay, well do it. And he just very unabashedly breaks into song and, and God uses it to soften the heart of this police chief. I mean, so what would you say to maybe some of our Western culture listeners who say, man, I'm really excited about these stories and I want to be faithful to what God has commanded to, us to do, but I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of, of uh, you know, being maligned or misunderstood or persecuted or you know, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to engage people with the gospel. What, what's your message to someone like that? 
I, I would say there there are a number of us that could help them be equipped. You know, there there are a lot of us who are equipping people to do this. This this uh, these approaches, and there's some different styles, but they have they ultimately boil down to the same principles. Are a much more natural way to share good news. It's not a cold sales call technique. It's it's uh, we we often talk about. A Shema word or deed, Shema coming out of Deuteronomy 6, a hear and obey. And, and one of the ways I define it is we help people learn to do share a spiritually fragrant word or deed that invites spiritual response, but does not force it. Because a lot of our evangelism is, let me trap you into an answer instead of let me do a good deed or let me say the good news and if you're spiritually responsive, you'll say, can I hear more? Uh, people are, are healed. They want to know more. People hear a story about Jesus. They want, they feel peace. And so one, this is a much more natural response. Uh, everybody's called to be a disciple maker. We've lost that understanding. And, and I tell people, I don't care what personality quiet, boisterous, whatever your personality is, God can make you a disciple maker that fits your hand, that fits your style, and is is worth doing. Is there a risk? Absolutely. Is uh, Will people misunderstand? Absolutely. If they go among unreached peoples, is it dangerous? Yes. People ask me all the time, is it where your people go dangerous? I said, yes, and your point. Jesus didn't promise us not to be in danger, but I will tell you, there's no more exhilarating life than to be on the cutting edge saying, I want to be a part of working with people like these guys I've just talked about to carry the gospel where it's never been, life where it's never been, to see people come to faith and go, well, I can do that. In, in certain parts of South Asia, when they read they, they use Matthew 28, 16 to 20 as an evangelism tool. When these folks who are the lowest in society read that the God of the universe invites them and empowers them to do his job with them, they are so honored. They say, I want to, I don't want to follow Jesus like that. And, and so it's like, yes, absolutely. It is, it is worth every risk. Let me, let me share. So one of the things that we, this kind of speaks to what you're asking. Mm -hmm. Is it dangerous and is it worth it? Absolutely. So one of the things that uh, I shared with the perspectives class last night, uh, when people go out among unreached peoples, they need to learn about spiritual warfare. I came from a, a church background. We didn't really understand that. And I sure wish we had, we would have been better prepared. Doesn't mean it won't happen, but we need to be aware of the spiritual kinds of attacks that will happen. And we were working there again, these six, seven families working together, the different organizations. And we began to realize that certain ones of our children were all being having very severe issues. Our issue, our daughter had clinical depression early on, struggled for years. And, and she would share this story. I have permission to share this story. And I mean, really dark and challenging times. We realized later some of it was probably from some situation that probably emerged spiritually in that people group. And the good news is she's doing well now and 
and by God's grace recovered has recovered and, and so forth um, is actually a licensed professional counselor. But of course, my wife and I felt like, man, we should have been more alert, more aware, more on task with spiritual, you know, praying about spiritual warfare. And the Lord, one, several years ago, our daughter came to us and said, I want you guys to know that I know, I know you feel like you didn't protect me spiritually as, as you know, should have happened. And I want you guys to know it was all worth it. That's what I tell people. Will there be challenging things? Will your kids suffer sometimes? Yes. Will you suffer? Will coworkers, you know, that you know get killed? Yes. But it's worth it to see the life that comes when people become followers of Jesus and they make other disciples who make other disciples and make other disciples who start churches. It is worth it. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, before we sort of start bringing our interview today in for a landing, I kind of push into that a little bit. Uh, what it, What is it you think is going on that there is sort of this naivete, particularly within the Western churches here in the States, especially of of just evil and, and warfare, there seems to be sort of a, perhaps even an ignorance just of, to the reality of the fact there's an enemy and that uh, we are not unopposed in this world. I think it comes from both ends of the spectrum. I think some is we, we oversimplify, you know, one end of the spectrum is we don't take some of these passages seriously uh, in scripture. And we, we're not in a culture that is sensitive to these issues. And so we, we don't study it and we don't get a, a, a healthy view of, of the kinds of issues. I think the other end of the spectrum is some people go overboard. It's kind of like a demon behind every bush, every bad <laughs> thing that happens. And, and it's like, no, it, you know, that can be an extreme too. You know, pe people are sinful and people will do bad things to you because they're people. So I think I think it does come to let's look seriously at this and let's look at what Jesus did. And let's talk to, I, you know, I've learned a ton from people who come from cultures. I, I know followers of Jesus I trust greatly from other cultures. They're much more sensitized uh, to the presence of demons. Mm -hmm. And I listen to them. It's it's taken me a while to kind of go, okay. But but I've learned from them as we go back to scripture and say, all right, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? What did the disciples do? And so we, we need to examine it. We need to be wise. We need to remember he's greater than anything in the world, any evil mm -hmm. spirit. He's greater than the evil one. So we don't go in terror, but we go uh, soberly uh, where and and move on absolutely well what message would you like to leave with our audience today concerning this vital great commission work that has been going on with beyond i would say that people need to take seriously jesus's command to make disciples of every ethne that's a command he's given to every one of us he said go make disciples of every ethne, it, it is frankly criminal 
that a third of the world still has not heard, it is wrong. It is one of the great sins of, and it's not just the Western church. I was a long time in Malaysia and uh, very much a part of a local church. And many of them are Chinese Malaysian. And I was very loved. We were very loved in the church. And I would often be asked to bring a missions challenge. And after one of these mission challenges, one one of the one our she was the missions chair, dear lady, great friend. She came up to me, thanked me for the sermon very graciously, and said, "But Kent, you don't understand. We Chinese don't like to send our kids off on mission like you Westerners do." I said, "Mrs. So and So, what Westerners do you know? There are too many around the world in the church who are not willing to send people and not willing to go to people." who've never heard the gospel. So this has got to change. We've got to get people out. We've got to have them well-trained. And, and we can, there's a collective global community that trains people in multiplying disciple-making. We can get them uh, equipped if they're willing, but they've got to be willing. Absolutely. So if people would like to be involved in Beyond and what is going on uh, with your organization, what are some ways people can get involved in this global effort to reach people with Jesus? Well, I'll mention beyond, but then I'll also mention the global uh, coalition. We are very involved in, in prayer efforts. We can connect you to uh, regular intercessory efforts for prayer. We have a number of videos that people have found useful in communicating this message and it's easily found on beyond.org and go down and find the video uh, link. And there are multiple videos there. They can be downloaded easily on Vimeo. Um, we list books that are, uh, they're not they are not our books. They're books about movements. We have a page about them that people can, can go and order them, Amazon, Kindle, whatever. So there are ways that people can become aware. For those who want to say, I want to learn how to, uh, help start movements. We help equip people here and then help them equip them. We call that phase one before they go and then help equip them there. I want to then speak to the 2414 Global Coalition of Movement Leaders. That's the simple phrase that we use, 2414, uh, based off of Matthew 2414. And those of us involved in this coalition uh, are not seeking name or recognition. We're doing it together. Uh, a lot of us find ways to channel funding to each other, to movements. That's one of the things Beyond does. We will channel funds to uh, key movements that we may not be directly connected to except through this broader relationship. So 2414now.net would have uh, some of this, this broader data that I shared about global movements and other resources available as well and regular Prayer efforts. Uh, we're coming up. Uh, the movement leaders. We have agreed around the world to set aside prayer and fasting uh, intensively in January every year. We do a lot of other prayer and fasting, but there's a special focus in January with prayer, uh, prayer email, and so forth available, and so people can sign up for that on 2414now.net. Excellent. I'll make sure to link both Beyond and the 2414 Network in the show notes. Well, Dr. Kent Parks, it's been so great to speak with you and to just get a window into what God is doing in the world. Thank you so much for being a part of this late hour today. 
Stacy, I sure appreciate this chance and, and really appreciate the, the questions you've asked. You've asked very insightful questions. Thanks a, a whole lot. Absolutely. Thank you for being on the show and God bless you. You too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Kent Parks from Beyond. Look for links to the Beyond Ministry as well as 2414, as mentioned by Kent in today's show notes. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at CaseyNolton or the Facebook page, This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for this 15th episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.